Seated. Bible's out. Genesis 37. Genesis 37. This morning we begin, you can come up, Kelly. This morning we begin the last half of the book, which covers one man's life, a man named Joseph. So Kelly's going to read, and then chapter 37, then we'll jump right in. Today's reading is Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? 
Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an office of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kelly. Somebody should make a movie out of this, huh? So, what was that? A musical, you think? Yeah. Familiar story? Probably for most of us, right? Nothing nothing too crazy or different or hard to understand, at least from this first chapter. So this begins in verse 1 with this phrase, sorry, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Now, if you've been tracking along, there's 10 of those sayings in Genesis, and this is the last one. So this is like the last part of the the book, and it's all about Joseph. So we're going to have 14 chapters given to the life of Joseph as we finish now together the book of Genesis. And here, I don't think there's anything mysterious or needs to be on earth from this chapter. It's pretty self-explanatory what takes place. But there's one big observation, I think, one thing that threads it all together, this chapter, one thing that links it all together, and it's this. Everything in this chapter contributes to the harm of Jacob. Did you catch that? Everything that takes place in this chapter gives fuel to his brother's growing hatred for him and for his harm. Everything from start to finish in the chapter. And it begins with hate. So I don't know if you guys circle in your Bibles, you have your your scripture journals. I would circle the word hate. So in verse 4, we are told that the brothers hated him. In verse 5, it says, they hated him. At the end of verse 8, it says, they hated him. So there's no question or not, they hate him. Verse 11 says, they are jealous of him. In verse 18, they want to kill him. In verse 19, they want to kill him. So we've got verse 4, they hate him. Verse 5, they hate him. Verse 8, they hate him. Verse 11, they're jealous. Verse 18, we're going to kill him. Verse 19, we're going to kill him. They want him out. They don't like their brother. Then, another thing to notice, just word-wise, is that the word brothers is used 20 times in this chapter. It's as if Moses wants to make sure that the original readers know who these guys are. Now, remember who the original readers are. Moses is handing them the book of Genesis as God's people are about to enter the promised land after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. See, now you guys know the story, so I can piece it together here. 
How'd they get there? Because of these 12 brothers. So they're linking their lives back through their family tree to these 12 dudes, to their 12 brothers, to the ancestors. So basically, Moses wants to make sure that they know and that we know that these brothers, the patriarchs, the great tribes of Israel, are the ones who are hating their brother and want to kill their brother. So everything in this chapter now gives expression to their brother's hatred. Somehow, either it fuels their hatred or gives expression to their hatred. So I'm going to just run through them. Rather than retell the story, let's look at, there's nine. I'm just going to really name them rather quickly. They're going to go on the screen in case you want to write them down, you can. But here's the nine, nine things that happen in this story that all contribute to Joseph's life at age 17. Is anybody 17 in here? No 17-year-olds? Age 17, this is what his 17th year of life was like. This is what happened, at least for a portion of that year. The first thing is it. The first thing that fuels it all is Joseph speaks evil about his brothers. Joseph, it says in verse 2, brought a bad report to their father about their brothers. The, the Hebrew word there is the word wicked or evil or lying. In other words, Joseph said stuff about their brothers that was not true. Maybe he embellished the truth. Maybe they did a half job and he made it sound even worse when he talked to his parents about it or his dad about it. So right out of the gate, it's like Moses wants us to know that Joseph's not exactly the greatest guy in the world either. Not that he deserves what's coming to him, but he's not God. He's not perfect. So he, so he reveals this to us. That he actually is going to his dad probably to make sure that he stays the number one son. Let me tell you about what my brothers are doing. None of us have ever done that, have we? <laughs> number two. Jacob loves Joseph more than his brothers. That's clear in verse 3. We're told that. This pattern of favorite children continues, right? Just like Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob, now Jacob loves one son more than the others. And he loves him so much that we're told he gives him this special coat. I'm going to ruin everybody's musicals right now. Because... I don't know how it got translated this way. In the Hebrew, it has nothing to do with color at all. So we've got to change all the songs that go with the color thing. But actually, it means a robe that would have touched his palms and went down to the soles of his feet. In other words, it was a long robe, and it probably represented some sort of authority. He was special, unique in authority, which his dad gave him, which would have looked really bad around his brothers. His dad already saying, look, I'm putting my son forward as more important than the rest of you. And so his dad's contributing to this hatred by giving his son this favorite coat, this nice coat, this long coat, symbolizing authority, and by saying, and everyone knows, he loves Joseph most of all. The third thing in this thing, that, this story that fuels fire for hatred are the dreams, right? We got these two dreams. And I love it that before we're even told what the first dream is, we're already told the brothers are going to hate him for it. Right? It says in verse, four, verse 5, they hate him for the dream. Then they tell us the dream, and then it says, and they hated him for the dream. So we're going to bookend the dream with hatred. We don't want to bow down to our brother in any way. Number four is this. Israel, or Jacob, sends Joseph to find his brothers. Now, I don't know if you track him with this. Verses 12 to 14 are crazy. If you're Jacob, are you going to send your son out to find his siblings that all hate him. And, oh, just go out in the wilderness. Just go find your brothers and then get a report and bring it back to me and tell me how they're doing. I mean, you're setting your kid up to get beat up. I mean, come on. 
Yet, what does what Jacob do? He sends him out. It's almost like he's clueless as to what's happening in the family. So Jacob provides a little more fuel to the fire here by sending him out. And then when he gets out there, he's wandering around, can't find his brothers. And this random dude pops up in the story. His whole, whole purpose is to do what? Make sure that Jacob, Joseph, finds his brothers, right? That's his whole role in the story. So now we've got this man directing Joseph to find the brothers. At this point, all Joseph has to do is say, couldn't find my brothers in Shechem. He goes home. He tells his dad, dad, brothers aren't where they're supposed to be. They weren't in Shechem. And instead, he gets redirected by a random dude to go to his brothers and to find them. Then he gets there. Number six, bad thing that happens. The brothers plot to kill him. They're going to kill him and throw him into a pit. But Reuben persuades them to skip the killing part and just throw him in the pit which is bad. But now Joseph is thrown in the pit, ready to what? Starve to death? Dehydrate? I don't know whether Joseph is thinking, I wish they had just killed me and thrown me in the pit rather than me die here over the course of weeks and months. So he's in bad shape. Then verse 8, he is sold into slavery, as we know, by the Ishmaelites. And then finally, number nine, the brothers trick Jacob into believing that Joseph is dead. So now no one is going to come looking for Joseph because the assumption, assumption is that he is gone. So just like, get the symbolism here, Jacob used a goat to lie to his dad. Now a goat is used to trick Jacob. What goes around, comes around. So he's getting it. So the story, everything in the story is leading to bad, just bad stuff for Joseph. And to top it all off, to top it all off, who is absent from the story? God. There is no mention of God. All of this bad is happening to Joseph and God seems to be unaware. You ever feel that way? If one more thing goes wrong, you have a day like that, a week like that, a month like that, a year where one thing after another just keeps going wrong and you wonder, where is God in all of this? Well, listen, the name of God may be absent from this chapter. God's hands are all over it. God is at work behind the scenes. God's name may be, may be nowhere in the chapter, but his eyes are fixed on Joseph, and God is at work in Joseph's life. I see at least three, and there's more, but the first is in the dreams. Who gave him the dreams? We know they come true, right? God gave him the dreams. So, so God's at work in the dreams. What about the random dude in the field? What is he doing there? I mean, come on. We, we don't believe in coincidences, do we? I don't. So random dude in the field is there, just so happens, to meet him, to point him to where his, brother was gonna, his brothers are going to be. And they got the Ishmaelite caravan passing by on that day at just the right time, to take him away to Egypt. So God's at work. 
But notice that all of these things that God does only contribute to Joseph heading to slavery in Egypt. God's not protecting Joseph. God is actually fueling the fire to get Joseph into slavery headed to Egypt. So what the heck is going on? What is God up to? He's active, but not in the way that I want God to be active. Well, we have an advantage over Joseph, at least at Joseph at age 17, in that we can read ahead. We can read ahead. And I think we are to read ahead so that we know how to interpret and translate and understand this story. What do we learn from this story? What's the point of the story? What does God want us to take away from this story? Have you guys ever studied or gone into some kind of study of of Joseph or these chapters at all? Any kind of, okay, so nobody at all has ever heard the name Joseph before. Just just kidding. So there, there there are some strange ways that you can try to understand this story. And I think those come out of not going ahead in the story and seeing what God wants us to see in the story. So I need you to turn your Bible now over to chapter 45. Go to chapter 45 with me. What we're going to do this morning is learn from God's word how to understand God's word. And we're going to learn how we're going to read or what we're going to look for for the rest of the weeks we're going to spend in Genesis. Does that make sense? This is the guiding principle for all the studies we're going to do in the future, in the book of Genesis. So here's what Genesis 45 says. This is near the end, so you guys know the story. Spoiler alert, all the stuff that happens. And now the rescue has happened. Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. And it says, so Joseph said to his brothers, this is Genesis 45.4, Joseph says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me. (laughs) That's key. God sent me. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, And yet, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So what's clear from this explanation of Joseph's? God sent him. So the brothers didn't really send Joseph to Egypt. God sent Joseph to Egypt, and God sent Joseph to Egypt with a purpose, to preserve life, right, and to keep them alive. That was his aim. So think about this. Try to think about this in broader biblical categories. God sends a man to keep people alive. God sends a man to preserve life. Okay, now flip over to Genesis 50, where Joseph is going to give us another summary statement that sheds light on everything that's happening in chapter 37. This is after Jacob dies. 
Genesis 50, dad dies. Brothers think, now it's revenge time for Joseph. Dad's gone. He's going to take revenge on us. And so in Genesis 50, verse 19, these are probably words that you've heard before. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? There's a verse to memorize, all of us. (laughs) Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So man, brothers meant it for evil, yet the very same events that were unfolding, God meant them for good. And what's the reason, what's the goal? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. God taking things that are evil and flipping them on their heads to be used for good. Yes, it was still evil, but it accomplished exactly what God wanted it to accomplish. See, God is all in chapter 37, sending Joseph so life could be preserved. Pastor theologian Jordan Thomas said this week, you see this chapter and really the following 14 chapters in Genesis are not really a biography of Joseph. They're a biography of God. They're really more about God than they're about Joseph. They're about God's plan to send Joseph to give life to people who otherwise would have died. So so there it is. As we study, as we look at the rest of Genesis together, the banner that needs to fly over chapters 37 to 50, the, the interpretive key for these 14 chapters, the main thing God wants us to see is that there is only one God, who's calling the shots in this story, that what man means for evil, God's going to flip on its head for good, and that God is at work behind the scenes. That's what we're looking for. So as we keep reading, we're going to be looking for, how is God doing this? Chapter after chapter, as the story unfolds, how is God taking what is evil and using it for good in order to save people's lives? Now, I think there's application here. For me and for us, I think as one of your pastors, we want to make sure that you see the application for this. That very often, bad and yet even evil things can happen in our lives that God is meaning to use for good. And that's hard. That's hard. I don't know if in this room, I'm sure some of you, evil things have happened. Bad things have happened. Hard things have happened, and you've wondered, where is God? And I think the truth here is we're seeing how God operates. God loves to take evil, bad, hurt, and use it for our good. But what I want you to understand is that Joseph doesn't come to this conclusion until when? At the end of it all, not at the beginning. That helps me. That helps me. These words that we just read don't leave Joseph's lips until the end of the story. He does not say it. When he's thrown into the pit, he doesn't yell up, that's okay. You mean this for evil, but God's going to use it for good. I think other words were coming out of his mouth that I won't repeat on Sunday morning. When his robe is ripped off of him, 
when he was sold into slavery, when he's going to be falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, when he lands himself in jail for long periods of time. It's during that season he's not saying, oh, don't worry, it's evil, but God's going to use it for good. It's not until the end that either he sees it or God reveals it to him. And so I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what kind of challenge or struggle. It would be wrong for me to say, don't worry, God's going to use it for good. No. I believe he will, but I believe that's really hard to embrace when you're in the process. It's hard. And I think we need to be careful and really help one another as we walk through trials to love the sovereignty of God and to embrace the sovereignty of God. Yet at the same time, understand that God does not expect us to fully embrace his sovereignty with joy when you're in the middle of the struggle, when you're in the middle of the trial, when life is really hard. But still listen, because it's true. God is always at work. He's always at work. I think it was easy for me to read chapter 37 to see God's name not there and to go, where was God then? It's like I think I can live days and wonder, where was God? He's at work. He's at work. Ask him to show you where he's at work, but whether you see it or not, God is at work in your life. And he's using all of those things for your good. We know that from Romans, right? We know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. Not some things, but all things. For those who are called according to his purpose, at the very least, maybe at the very greatest, it's to conform you to his image. We have that verse, Jordan. It's to conform you to his image. You guys know the verse, but God's working all things for your good. It's all part of his purposes. But there's something else, I think, for us to receive from chapter 37, what we just read together. There's two other places in the Bible where God references this story in chapter 37. One is in Psalm 105. We're going to put this on the screen. You can look it up if you want. Psalm 105 is a song praise celebration of redemptive history, what God has done among his people. And at one point, the psalmist is singing this song of praise to God for all he has done, and he gets to the story of Genesis 37. And he says this, When he summoned a famine in the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them. We've seen that before, right? Joseph says, right? I was sent by God. So it says it again here. So I'm going, okay, this is important. Now another place in Scripture is referencing what Joseph said. That's significant. And I think it's significant because we know, you know, church, God is a? He's ascending God. We've seen this over and over again, right? Over the years we've been together as a church family. God is ascending God. It's part of God's character. It's his attribute. He sends. The Father sends the Son. The Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit. And then we know that Jesus sends us. He sends his disciples out. So God is ascending God. So this is not new to us. We shouldn't be surprised when we go, oh, God is the one sending Joseph. And why is God sending Joseph? Well, we know to save people, to save them from starvation. But look what else he says he's doing. Verse 18. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, 
the word of the Lord tested him. Ah, so now we have another little clue. What is God doing in Genesis 37 and 38 and 39 and 40 and all the way through chapter 50? He's testing Joseph. He's testing him. Now, confidently, we can read those stories and go, I wonder how Joseph's being tested. And I wonder if there's ways that God is similarly testing me. Because God doesn't just test Joseph, although he's using this to test Joseph, to test if Joseph really is going to believe that God's word is true, that the dreams are true, that they're going to come true. But he has to wait for that, doesn't he? And wait, and wait, and wait. (laughs) If there's anything we've learned from Genesis is that God often makes people wait. <laughs> it's so funny. I was thinking the other day, you know, you hear like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm like, yeah, I wonder what that really means. Like the God, I'm beginning to have a clearer picture now of what I see when I think about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And one of the things I see is people waiting and waiting. I, I, I feel this way all the time. God, could you just do what I've been praying for you to do? I'm tired of waiting. <laughs> don't want to wait anymore. Could you just do it? Wait and wait and wait. And all that waiting is for what? It's testing. It's God testing us, testing us. And Peter tells us this in 1 Peter. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though tested by fire, Tested, tested, tested. God tests us. He tests your faith. Trials happen. Struggles happen. Hopefully nothing like what's happened to Joseph. But they're trials nevertheless, and they're tests. They're the testing of your faith. As I was thinking about this, I was just reminded of many friends I have who began walking with Jesus with much faith and today have no faith at all. And I was thinking about all of you and basically pleading with God that that would not be the case for any of us in this room, knowing that it's possible that none of us are beyond that. And so if this morning you feel like your faith is maybe headed in the wrong direction, maybe just really weak, I want to urge you to tend to your soul. Take it seriously. Get help. Talk to others. Get the encouragement you need. I think every believer walks through some season or seasons where their faith is weak. And it feels like it's getting weaker and weaker and weaker. It's a reality. And trials can bring about that testing. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Talk to people about it. Listen, if we aren't the place where you can say to somebody, look, you know what? I really don't have any faith today. I I don't even know what I believe anymore. This is the place to have those conversations, (laughs) right? If we can't have them here, where are we going to have them? Kids, you need to be able to say to your parents very clearly, I don't even know if I believe this stuff. And parents, when they do it, don't freak out. (laughs) We got to have these conversations because there's days where I get up and I go, is this all made up? I don't know. Life's hard sometimes. (laughs) So I, just, I, I urge you, I urge you, with Tyler and Jordan together, as your shepherds, we urge you, if you feel like your faith is going in a direction of weakness and tiredness, just tell somebody, get prayer, get help, get encouragement. We want to walk together through those seasons of life so that our faith at the end of the day will pass 
the test. So that's, that's the one place we go. Psalm 105, another interpretive grid. We're going to see Joseph get tested as we keep reading through the book of Genesis. The next place that we see Joseph mentioned is in Acts 7. Not where I thought I was going to find Joseph at all. Surprised me. So let me just say how this works. I'm trying to figure out what do I say about Joseph that means something to us who know that Jesus has already come and died. And dummy me delays to find places in the New Testament where Joseph is mentioned (laughs) to help me do that. (laughs) Well, it's there. And by seeing it, it helps us understand what do we do with Genesis 37. So, Acts 7. Acts 7 is the story of Stephen. Do you guys remember what happened to Stephen? He gets stoned, right? Stephen gets stoned. And Stephen gets stoned after basically preaching a sermon. And in the sermon that he preaches, he preaches to this whole group of leaders. There's lots of leaders there, spiritual leaders and religious leaders, and they're all there. And he preaches this sermon, which basically walks everyone through redemptive history. He takes it, talks about Moses, and he talks about Abraham, and he talks about Joseph. And so we need to see how does he think about Joseph? How does he see the story of Joseph so that we can then learn from that what God wants us to see in the story of Joseph? Does that make sense? What I think about the story of Joseph really doesn't matter, does it? I think what Stephen thinks about it is more important because it's recorded in God's word. So let's see what Stephen has to say about it. So here's the main point. Stephen is really stoned at the end of the day because he says that his brothers that the brothers of Joseph, because of how they treated him, that's where he goes. So here's here's how he walks through this. Verse 9, hope this is helpful. So in verse 9, in his speech, he says, the patriarchs, you know who those are? The brothers, okay? The brothers are jealous of Joseph and sell him into slavery. So he's walking through redemptive history, and he goes to Joseph. He goes to Moses, and he says, this Moses, whom they rejected. They, he's referring back to The brothers, their ancestors, but the family tree rejected him, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Does that not sound familiar? What do the brothers not want of Joseph? You're not going to rule over, yeah, you're not going to rule over me. We're not going to bow to you. Well, they said the same thing, their ancestors, to Moses. And then he goes on, he says, our fathers refused to obey Moses and thrust him aside. So he gets thrust aside, it's like Joseph gets thrust aside, and then the story goes on. And he ends with this. So this is his conclusion. So he he talks about how all you're doing is keep pushing my anointed people aside. And then he says this, to these leaders. So you're in the room with all these leaders, and Stephen looks at them and points at them and says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So now he's connecting Moses, Joseph, Abraham to the Holy Spirit meaning the Holy Spirit was speaking through them. The Holy Spirit was working through them. You resisted the Holy Spirit. You always have, as your fathers did. Again, family tree, family family leaders, your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Answer, all of them. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Okay, good. So they killed them whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Okay, I want to really help you. You're following the train of thought here that Stephen is going down. This is the road Stephen is going down. 
Here in these verses, Stephen is connecting Joseph to Jesus. He's telling us that there's something similar between the two. What's the similarity? Rejection. They were both rejected. So Joseph is a type of Christ. We've talked about this, typology. He foreshadows Christ in what way? Rejected. He rejected. What else is similar about Joseph and Jesus? We talked about it a little bit earlier. It's being sent. Joseph is sent. Jesus is sent. And for what purpose? To save people. So as we look at the story of Joseph, we need to look at how is he rejected? The words, the words that are in the verse are, are clear. Persecuted, betrayed, resisted. All of those phrases, we're going to see them used to talk about how Joseph is treated throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. And do you remember last Sunday, we recounted what Jesus says about in the book of Moses, there's things written in there about me, Jesus says. Well, this is one of them. See, Joseph is that type of Christ and that his brothers would be jealous of him just like their offspring, their later brothers, would be jealous of Jesus. So the same thing's going to happen. There's the rejection of Joseph just like there is the rejection of Jesus. The person that God sends to save actually gets rejected. But there's also a difference, which I think is significant. Because how did that verse end in Acts 7? Jesus was the righteous one who was betrayed and murdered. Murdered. What about Joseph? Was he murdered? He wasn't murdered, was he? But what did happen? He escaped murder. He escaped death. His blood wasn't shed, was it? But what did happen in the story? He's going to forgive his brothers. Let's go to chapter 37 first. What substitutes for his death? He's sold into slavery. The goat. And it's very clear in the text what happens to the goat in verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. What stops Jacob from searching for his son? He's got the blood of a goat. He must be real. He must be dead, but he's not. It's almost like there's a substitute going on. It's almost like the goat dies and sheds its blood. And then Joseph goes, I won't say free, but he doesn't die, does he? Have we seen this before? And this is the reason I'm pointing it out. We're looking for patterns in redemptive history. Was there ever another time that a goat died in someone's place? Or maybe a ram? Maybe in Jacob's family? Maybe in Joseph's family? Maybe Abraham and Isaac? Remember the story? Right? A blood of a lamb is shed, a blood of a ram, the blood of a goat, so that someone else can go free. I think there's a hint here, a whisper to Jesus in Genesis 37, a whisper to a goat's blood being shed so that Joseph really doesn't go free yet, but one day the blood of Jesus would set him free, wouldn't it? Permanently free, forever free. Once again, 
I think we look at Jesus and we say, wow, look at how God used evil for good. I mean, isn't that what it says in Acts 22? Or Acts 2, we have this verse too. You guys know this verse. The men of Israel, this is after Jesus is crucified. This is before Stephen's speech. But it says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is using man's evil for good. Just like Joseph. God is using man's evil to bring about good. There's this grand group prayer in Acts 4, 27, where a similar thing is said. For truly in this city, this is God's people praying to God, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do, oh God, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. <laughs> the sovereignty of God. God taking man's mistakes, sins, evil, and flipping it around for his good and purposes, his good purposes for us. I mean, this gives me hope on so many levels because I jack up my life all the time. I do. I do stupid things. I don't do the stuff that I want to do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. And yet somehow it's true that God is able to take all of that and still flip it around for good. I don't know. I don't, when I was younger, I didn't have a lot of regrets. The older I get, I think the more regrets I have, the more redos I wish I could have. Wouldn't you love to have some redos? This gives me hope. You know, and even those redos, God... God can flip them around. God has purposes. God is able to take my sin, my evil, my mistakes, and flip them around to use for his good and for his purposes. You see, God, God's got a plan. It starts in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. It's going to end in Genesis where it's all about God, and then it keeps going, and then it continues into 2023, and your name's in the story. Your name is in the story. He's still writing it. You're part of redemptive history. You're part of the post-cross redemptive history where God is continuing to take evil and use it for good, where he's continuing to take trials and to use them to conform us and to test us to see if our faith is genuine. You're part of the story. God's hand is on you. It's on you. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean he's not active because he is. And so I pray as we work our way through the rest of Genesis that we'll have these banners flying over it. How is God testing Joseph? How is God taking evil and turning it for good? Where do we see Joseph's rejection similar to the way that Jesus was rejected? So I think there's a lot of good stuff in here that we're going to see and learn that's very relevant to us and who we are today. So I want to pray. We're going to sing a song. I want to pray. And I really do want to encourage you this morning, if you find your faith, your belief even in the sovereignty of God through the struggles of trials that you're going through is waning, to grab somebody around you and just tell them and let them pray for you. At least get the ball rolling this morning. Don't leave here weak without asking for help. Promise? Raise your right hands. I promise. I 
Do it. Do it. That's why we're here. That's why we're a family. All right, let me pray, and then we'll sing a song. Holy Spirit, I, I ask you to help us to not see this story of Joseph as an isolated event. That one time in history, you were sovereign and did good stuff for somebody who had bad stuff happen to him. God, I pray that we would see this as you. This is how you work. This is how you work through redemptive history. This is how you worked in Joseph. This is what you did in Jesus in taking what man meant for evil and using it for our good today. And I ask you to help us to believe that reality and to know that you're still doing that. And so God, for for any of my friends in this room that have, have crazy regrets, maybe even things that are recent, I pray that you would, I pray that you wouldn't just help them believe it, but I pray you'd show them, I pray you'd show us how you're using our own mistakes, even things done to us, for our good. Show us, I pray. And I ask, Lord, for any of my friends in this room whose faith is just, you know, they know it's headed downward. They know it's headed in the wrong direction. And I pray that you would Give them the courage this morning to be able to look a friend in the eye and just say, you know what, I, I think my face may be going, going the wrong way so that they can receive prayer and just help and encouragement, God, that we all need because we've all been there. And so, Spirit, do that, I pray. Stir hearts in this room, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.